funny that people laugh every time they say Reverend Eric Camfield. I'm not sure what to make of that. But I do bring greetings from Daniel Meyer, our senior pastor. I was at a White Sox game with him last night. And uh, he looks refreshed. He's, um, I think he's having a great sabbatical. He's very grateful for all of you and for our church for making this happen. And he's got a lot of ideas. Which, if you know Dan, or if you're on staff here with Dan, it makes you start to worry. Because when Dan starts getting ideas, right? But he, but he, but he, looks, he looks great, and we had a good time last night. Um, I know most of you are familiar, or we've chatted in the past, but I thought I would just give just a little bit of an update or history. Um, for those of you that don't, I've been here for seven and a half years, which is hard to believe. My kids were three and four when we moved here. And uh, we came from Ohio. We were on staff with a church there, um, really leading a lot of change, helping them move from a kind of a traditional model of worship to one of more of community, which meant a lot of small groups, a lot of discipleship. That's where Greg Ogden found me years back and, and, and brought me here uh, to work alongside he and Dan in our great church here. Um, before that, I was on staff with the sports ministry, Athletes in Action, which through the vehicle of baseball, we traveled all through Western Europe developing baseball, um, both at a local and national level with their Olympic teams. And, you know, but through, the, through baseball sport, we were, that was a platform that we could share the gospel. We did that through college. Athletes, growing them up, discipling them, so they would actually be able to do the ones that deliver the ministry, sending them back to their campuses. So um, I'm passionate about a few things. One is the church. One is the gospel. The other is scripture and, you know, the kingdom of God. Um, so when I get an opportunity to teach or speak in the topics wide open, I always come back to one of those things because I just think, I mean, this is the foundation of it all anyway. And I'll be preaching, I think, in the contemporary services July 7th, and I think I'm just going to preach on discipleship, right, cultivating a heart of a disciple. Because I just think, like, what else should we be preaching until we get this right? So um, hopefully you have Bibles. We're going to live a little bit in 1 Corinthians 15 today, so you can earmark that. But I've given you a handout that has many, many um, Bible passages on it, notes. Use that um, for whatever you like. One of the things you'll know about me, I love to teach and, and that stuff, but my teaching is very interactive. And so we're going to give you some little time to huddle up, you know, to do an exercise around your table. I like feedback. Occasionally I'll just ask questions, which you're totally allowed to give your input and... Uh, um, so it just keeps it kind of fresh and moving as we go. I'm married to Sue Ann. I forgot to mention that. Wonderful woman and wife um, who teaches here occasionally in different capacities. She is on staff with an organization called Caris, which if you're familiar with CareNet, um, which deals with um, unplanned pregnancies, um, Caris is, deals with Cook County. CareNet is more DuPage County. And so she works in the city. This is just the... Uh, Five months ago, she transitioned from InterVarsity Press. She was one of the, she was a publicist and editor for them. Actually worked with Dan on Witness Essentials, on publicizing that for them. Um, But she's a remarkably gifted woman. And, of course, Clay is 10, Sadie's um, 11. Yes, that's correct. And uh, great kids, very active. We've got travel baseball tonight, tomorrow, Saturday, sometime on Sunday, I'm sure, as well. Sadie swims. She just set a record last night. For the swim club and the backstroke, you know, and what's crazy, she just started swimming like a year ago. So, like, anyway. So I partly joke when I tell my kids, I love them, 
and I will support them no matter which sport they choose to be a professional in. So, um, anyway, so that's that's a little bit about me. But what our topic today, and you'll see it from your handout, is the gospel, and we're going to kind of revisit the gospel because I have a great burden for the church, um, um, both the church globally, the church in America, and even our church here locally in the western suburbs. But I kind of have this burden, this angst, because I'm not loving all what I'm seeing happen in the life of the church, capital C church, kind of, especially the Western church, Europe and America. Because you know what? I see Christians in Christian churches that are not living a whole lot different than what's happening in the culture around us. You would think if we're the called out ones, the ecclesia of God, that there would be something different about us. In Acts chapter 2, it says, they found favor with all the people and the Lord added daily to the number of those that were being, there was something about that community that was drawing people in. I don't see the church drawing people in like it did years back. And I know Rick, I think he left Reverend Gleiman. I'm not sure what he makes you call him. I just call him Rick or Hey, you know, we office right next to each other. We're good buddies. Um, you know, but I just know, I mean, I just see what's happening in marriages and in family life, both outside the church, but also what's going on in the church. I see the struggles with men. I see the strain on, I mean, I don't know, morality and so many things, right? So, like, it, it bothers me that we should, we should look a lot different than what we do sometimes compared to the culture around us. Um, I get a little worried that discipleship, right, that word is often um, an option or at best a program in many churches, and just because you go to a group doesn't mean that you're necessarily involved in discipleship. That's a part of it. But disciples are about pursuing others and calling them to live as Christ is Lord of their life. And it multiplies. It grows. I don't see that always happening in the church. Um, I wonder sometimes why every year 4,000 churches in America are closing their doors, that they're ending, ceasing to exist. 4,000 a year. You know, and so part of also my passion is I think we need to be planting more churches. You know, not every church can be, you know, several thousand like Christ Church. I think we need many churches all over um, just to fill kind of the void, the trajectory that the church is on. Um, most churches in America right now are actually declining in numbers as well. So not only are we losing churches, but they're growing smaller as they go. Um, I wonder why is is the gospel really lagging when it comes to transforming people's lives? And are all of these problems that kind of I'm um, list, listing, you know, is it a problem with the gospel or is it something else? And so today really what I, what I want to do is just have us revisit this thing called the gospel and perhaps reimagine or ignite a passion to commit our lives to be gospel people. And so on your handout, I've just given you some of the textbook definitions of what gospel means. Because it means different things depending on the context and what you're talking about. Literally, the word gospel means good news or to, pro to proclaim significant events. The word gospel is not original to Christianity, right? The early church used it because it just meant the herald, to tell good news. Like it was almost like the news channel, right? Something significant's happened, so I'm gospeling you what just happened, whatever. So the early church said, we've got a gospel as well. We've got good news, and we're going to talk about what that is today. Um, Another definition, kind of like a Webster definition, says the gospel is something that's accepted or promoted as infallible truth or as a guided principle or doctrine. The gospel can also refer to one of the four books, first four books of the New Testament. 
right? And there's actually a gospel within the gospels. Um, the gospel can also mean the message concerning Christ, the kingdom of God, or salvation. And then I think what we perhaps, you know, and you can give me feedback on this, when we say gospel for many people, and again, I came out of a campus crusade background, so very much in a very high evangelistic organization, gospel means plan of salvation. How do we help people get saved? Does that resonate? Okay, so here's what I want to, I want to have a little fun. You've got some, a little box there on your handout. I want you to take just maybe three minutes, right? You don't have to get really deep, but I want you around your tables just to list a few bullet points on what the gospel means to you. Not these definitions I gave you, but when we talk about the gospel in the church, the good news, I want you to kind of like, how would you define what the good news is? Okay, so just take three minutes. Um, you know, you can circle up with some others. Don't make this too hard. This is just fun. You know, throw some things out, and then I'll capture some of them up here on the board when we're done. Okay? So go ahead. What does the gospel mean? How do you define it? Okay. All right, gospel. What is the gospel? How do, how do you define it? It doesn't have to be in any particular order. I just want to get some words up here. So you shout them out, and I'll write them. Long shot. Oh, okay. I think it God's teachings to the disciples? Yeah. Who in turn trained people that they were with, and it's come all the way down now to where the ministers are. I mean, we have, we have kind of a difference of opinion here that I'd like to express, if I may. Okay. At our table, we, both, we all agreed that the gospel is the teaching from God. But then there was a little discussion, and we were saying, not every man who comes into the ministry or the priesthood is a gifted speaker. And although he's supposed to be in charge of his congregation and all, and he's supposed to have the sermon, if he hasn't been taught by his seminary, or if the minister hasn't been, then his congregation, I think, suffers by that because he... He just is not able to relate. He's a good man. He wants to good, do good. But in his sermons, he doesn't draw his people to, into the knowledge. And what do, we, what do they do about that? Are they teaching now at the schools that they should really improve on their presentation? Or does the congregation just go along with a minister that can't relate? Yeah. Me being here, did that prompt that? Bad ministers teaching? And, <laughs> is, that what, is that what made? No, anyway. I'm just joking. No, good, good, good question. Maria? I thought, of, I, I thought immediately of John 3.16. Okay. It sums it all up. That this is really great news. It's not how good I am or ever can ever be, which I can't. Mm-hmm. It, it's Jesus did it all. It's nothing I did. He did it all. Okay. In my place. What else? Someone comes up to you and says, what's the gospel? You're going to tell them what? The good news that Jesus came to earth giving us, giving us a physical view of God and how to be a child of God. Jesus to earth, so he's present. And then for what? What was the second part of that? Child of God. And how to be a child of God. 
Okay? Maybe one or two more. The gospel is... All right, one more. What is it? Say it again. Plan. I can write a little lower. We have many more good ideas. I just write really bad when it gets really low. So I just figure we stop our ideas where I write good. Was there one more thought? Yep. I was triggered by Lou and Thelma's dialogue. And in the good tradition of Marvin Wiley, I used an alliteration of preaching, praying, and practicing. Okay. You'd be proud of me. <laughs> but before that, I put down uh, thinking about the word, and I said, study it, live it, and share it. Okay. Good. Well, those are all great. <clears throat> I think those are great aspects of the what we mean by gospel. Some of the questions I would have is like... Um, Jesus did it all. Well, what did he exactly do? And how do you become a child of God? And what is the wonderful story? And if it's a plan for God's people, what's the plan? Plan of salvation, so what's the plan? You know, preach, play, practice, what? See what I mean? Like we're, So I think it's always interesting that what was so clear to the early church now has become a little fuzzy or it's become... You know, so many things that depending on the background that you come out of or the church denomination or, you know, tradition that you come from or your experiences, we define it all a little differently. Um, One of the, with Campus Crusade anyway, so let me just, let me throw this out to you and see if this rattles any cages because I like to rattle cages. I tell my wife, it's like, if there's no waves, then you're not rowing hard enough, you know, so we're going to row pretty hard. So... Is the gospel, essentially, that God loves us, John three sixteen, that God loves us, but we've messed up, right? Sin has come into the world. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. So, Jesus came to, to, to save us from our sins by dying on the cross, and if we believe in him, and if we believe in that, then we will go to heaven when we die. Is that the gospel? Everyone's nervous now, aren't they? Yeah, Maria. Well, I believe that. Yeah. The word, the word believe. Uh huh. You know, um, it's something more than just believing it. Okay. You have to receive it for yeah. yourself. You know, uh, it's like I think it's in John one twelve or something where it says, uh, "As many as received Him, to them became the sons of God." Mm-hmm. But I, it's when you just say you believe it. I mean, before I was saved, I believed it, but I wasn't saved. Yeah. 
So that word believe, to me, is a little tricky. Yeah, and especially in our culture and our language, believe doesn't mean a whole lot. You know, it's kind of like the word love. You know, I can say I love my wife and I love pizza. Well, I'm pretty sure though we're not talking about the same thing. So, but believe back then, you know, carried the connotations of faith or trust, that I'm going to put the weight of my life into that which I believe. For us, believe can seem a little soft or, you know, has levels of degree, but that's good. But what I just said, God loves us. We messed up. We can't save ourselves. Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. If we believe it, we'll go to heaven when we die. The challenge I want to throw out is that that is not the gospel. It might be a part of it, but that is not the gospel. And Dallas Willard, who just recently passed away, um, who was a good friend of Christ Church, you've probably read some of his stuff or heard of him, he would call this gospel, this form of the gospel, is really more sin management, right? That we need to do something with this sin so we can go to heaven when we die. It's almost like fire insurance, right? Because we don't want to go there. We want to go there. So if we believe this, then we can go there. The challenge is, we, what we have to examine, is that what Jesus taught? Is that what Peter and Paul and the apostles taught? Is that what the early church, was that their tradition, the first couple hundred years of the church and what I want to do is kind of enter back into that day and say, what, what, was it, what was the gospel to them? And see if that meshes or changes any of our perspective today. Because today, I think, right, I'm making some generalities, but I'm doing that to make the point. Today, gospeling, right, sharing the gospel, um, which has its root out of evangelism. Gospel and evangelism have the same root word. Salvation interest is, is a different word. Soteria, right? Soteriology, you know, the study of salvation. Today, gospeling seeks to persuade sinners to admit their sin and find Jesus as their Savior. We'd say that's a good thing. But I think back then, when we're talking about the time, the New Testament time, gospeling was driven by the story of Israel. And Jesus completed that story. Today, gospeling is driven by a salvation story and an atonement story, right? It's, it's your story. It's almost like we are the focus. Like, we have a problem. We want to go to heaven. So if we believe this, then we will go to heaven when we die. Like, we are very much the focus of today's gospeling. I think back then, it was telling the story of Jesus as Messiah, King, and Lord over all. God was the focus. Jesus was the focus. Not the personal side of salvation as much. Today, we tell the story of how people can be saved personally. Right? And some churches you know, do it in varying degrees in various ways. But I think back then, it was more of how, do we, how are we people living in the kingdom of God? Right? So I think there's a little bit of a difference between what we're communicating today in general and what they were communicating back then. And it's interesting, there's research being done with teens, I'd say you know, late te- teens to early 20s, mid-20s, right? and kind of like what is their understanding of God, what is the gospel, and there's this big fancy word, moralistic therapeutic deism, right? This is the current understanding of God. So moralistic is that we're supposed to be good. Um, therapeutic, it should make me feel good. So if I'm good, if I believe in God, then I should be good. It should make me feel good. And deism is that there is a God out there, but not necessarily this personal God, but he's out there and he's like a divine waiter. Right? When I need something, I'll call him over, and he should give it to me because I want to be happy and it should make me feel good. Right? This is the current kind of gospel that's out amongst our teenagers, college students, and those that are 
beginning families, right? And we kind of can look at them and say, we need to fix them. But they've received that from somewhere, right? They just didn't create it themselves. So that's just an, an example of, I think, where, where our gospel has been going and some of the fruit that we're seeing from it. What does it look like to go back to that original gospel? And I think some of the shifts, if you look at history, right? So what we're going to do is we're going to cover the whole Bible in about five or ten minutes here in just a second. We're going to cover all of church history, 2,000 years or so, in about two minutes, right? So we're just going to take some broad sweeps. But if you look from what, when I said then, you know, Jesus is Messiah, King and Lord, Kingdom of God, story of Israel that Jesus completes, that, and how we got to this personal plan of salvation gospel, right? I think there were some big milestones speckled with all kinds of other stuff in between there. But I think the first big thing was Constantine, right? What happened with Constantine, you church history buffs? Right, so the church becomes part of the state, right? It becomes legalized, right? And all of a sudden, there's a wide open door. We have cathedrals starting this underground movement that met in houses and really had to be a community together. All of a sudden now could worship together, and, and it became institutionalized. Then comes the Reformation, right? So I just like forwarded like 1,200 years. I know. But then the Reformation comes. And the Reformation, the big plea was justification by faith, right? We're not saved by works, and the church had kind of lost its way a little bit over all those years, right? Luther and the Reformers come, and it said it's justification by For it's grace you have been saved by faith, and it's not of yourselves, so that no one can boast, right? They anchored the Reformation on that verse. And so... The gospel moved a little more towards justification by faith. I can be good with God if I believe, right? That was the big, the big thing, and you know, certainly the, the prevalence of Scripture. So they studied, right? They looked to Scripture, and out of that grew our robust systematic theology, which in many, many ways is very, very good. But what systematic theology also did... It started breaking that story apart into little units. And then we studied those units, and we built theories and doctrines around those units. And what we found is our systematic theology, as good as it is, and we need it to help understand God, the church, like all of this stuff, creation, I think it also led to a lot of division in the church because all of a sudden someone said, well, I don't believe that. You know, we've got four, maybe five major atonement theories. Right? So how are our sins covered? Like churches divide over how they believe our sins are covered. It wasn't like that in the early days. Right, because their focus was maybe a little different. So systematic theology, then we have the Enlightenment come. This is, what, 300 years ago, 250 years ago, right? Individualism, right, that it's kind of like we can be enlightened, you know, the rise of science, um, you know, so I becomes very important. And, um, and certainly we see individualism, I think, is one of the prevailing problems in America, Western culture. I think it's a problem in the church. This breeds consumerism, isolationism, like all of these isms have their root, much of it, I think, in the Enlightenment. Industrialization, we can throw that in there, right? So not only are we I, but now we're able to process and manufacture, right? We can, we can make the processes to get it happen. So all of a sudden now, this story of King Jesus, now all of a sudden after our theology and our Enlightenment, you know, and being able to package it, you know, into formulas and that stuff, we became formulaic. Now we have these nice little booklets, these tracks, right, that we call here's the gospel. God loves you, right? So, and if you just believe this, boom, 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 then you go to heaven when you die, right? And I'm not even sure that's what, I mean, I, I know Jesus didn't preach that to his disciples. He told the disciples to follow me, 
And as they learned to follow him more and more every day, I think they came to realization that, you know what, I can also trust him with my eternal destiny as well. And they were willing to die for it. We almost flip it. We almost say, trust God with your eternal destiny, and then everything else is kind of optional in between. Just thank goodness you're saved and you're going to heaven. Right? It's kind of like that, that wasn't really part of the early scenario. So we do have um, Scott McKnight. So this is one book, The King Jesus Gospel. Outstanding. Dr. McKnight will be preaching here sometime in July. Um, um, and he's a good friend, you know, professor. He's at Northern Seminary now, so we're lucky to have him close by. He says this. He says, there is, one and, there is one and only one gospel, and it was passed from Jesus to the apostles to their churches. And if we want to be New Testament Christians, this gospel must once again become our gospel. When Christ is not preached as Lord, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, um, then the gospel has not been preached. You know, we preach a Savior and we do not preach as much a Lord, right? So we say, you want to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. A lot of times what we mean is Jesus can be your Savior, but for him to be your Lord, like, we don't always flesh that one out quite as clearly. So we have these first four books called the New Testament, and I want to give you a little background, like the framework or the construct on what the New Testament sits on, and this is where we're going to cover the whole Old Testament. Are you, are you tracking with me? Making sense so far? You're starting to see the disconnect a little bit, that, that what we have to rectify? Okay, good. So this is 12 plus points. I think you have these somewhere in your notes on kind of the construct of both the Old Testament that the New Testament sits on and how it kind of all ends in the end. So if you not really understood the big story of Scripture, you will in five minutes or so, maybe 10 minutes, depending how fast I talk. So it all begins with God is the creator. He's a creator, God, and covenant maker. Right? We see this. This is Genesis chapter 1 and 2. God creates, right? And he says that it's good. And then he creates humanity to be kings and priests in his cosmic temple. That's Scott McKnight, so it kind of freaked me out when I read that at first. Right? But the temple is where God's presence resides, right? And so God created this earth, right, to rule over, right? That he's a good God. Like he created it, that he is God, and he creates humanity in his image. The word is icon icons in his image. They're not God, but they're created in the image, icon, you know, to be like God, kind of. But their job is to, what, in, in Genesis 1, chapter, or verses 26, 27, right? They essentially rule the earth, subdue the earth. Be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth. Like, we are to rule, we are to govern the earth with God as king. That was, that was the original plan. It only took us two chapters to goof that up, because we are human afterwards. In Genesis chapter 3 hits, Sin enters the world, and what was the fruit that Eve ate? We always like to think an apple. Probably it was a fig, <laughs> right? But um, doesn't really say. Actually, it doesn't say at all. But um, you know, I, but you know, I think um, creation is about God ruling. He, he wants to do it through people, but they get so intoxicated with their own rulership. Um, they think they can take the place of God and they usurp God's authority. You know, they were icons, but they wanted to be more than that. They wanted to be like God. And so humans usurp God's role, <clears throat> wanting to be like God, to take the place of God, and they're driven from Eden, right? Paradise. And now it's going to get hard, right? All that was good now has become broken. You know, and you see three things, right? Our relationship between God is broken. We see that in, in chapter 3. 
But even before we realize our relationship between God is broken, it says the husband and wife, like, they realized they were naked, right? So actually something was broken between humanity. Then God comes searching, where are you? Now they're hiding from God. Something's broken with God, and we know creation's going to now be, we're going to have to work the land. It's going to be hard, labor pains, all of that. It's interesting when, when we get to the end, our relationship is restored back with God and with others. Those are the two great commands, and there's going to be a new heaven and new earth where it kind of all works back like it was back at the beginning. God's going to bring it all to that end, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. So that's chapter 3. The next seven or eight chapters, going through Genesis 11, it's almost a story of dumb and dumber. right? Think of, If you read this, right? you've got humanity's just getting worse, there's the flood, and then you have the Tower of Babel. And what humanity continues to do, they continue to flounder as usurpers. right? Usurp means like it's like arrogance, it's hubris, like that they just total disregard and the focus is totally on them and uh, and so it's another way like the tower of babel was another way of like reaching for that fig that forbidden fruit because they wanted to build that tower you know to god they could reach god um so now point five humans are brought into shape so to speak through covenant genesis 12 and 15 who's the big character in genesis 12 and 15 do you remember abraham oh it's in your notes right (laughs) So Abraham is kind of the first second Adam, right? First, David becomes the second second Adam. Christ is the third but true second Adam, right? You see some of this played out in Scripture. But, you know, you have these significant characters all along the way. But it tells us that God is not this God that's far away. That God is close, he's personal, and he enters in, that he pursues his humanity because God is king, he's going to rule, and he wants to do it through his people. And so the divine plan was for God to rule through one people, Israel, right? So God creates a people, um, and out of this people, right, now all of a sudden we get into the story of the Exodus. God calls his people out, right? He gives them the law, right? And God's presence is with them like it wasn't before, right? Even through the wilderness and beyond, then the temple comes, but God is going to be present with his people. And I think some of the words, like in Scripture, You know, we kind of have these important words. I think three of the most important words in Scripture is Israel, kingdom, and church. Because they all express God's rule in this cosmic temple through his people. Okay, that's like a major storyline in the Bible. And I think we don't hear that enough. Okay, so that's kind of the divine plan. But Israel's not content with that, right? We have a pattern of being usurpers. So now we want a king like everyone else. So God says... Not my ideal, but we'll go with plan B. Okay, so plan B is that God's going to rule, you know, through a king to the people, right? So now it's God, king, people, instead of God ruling through a people. Now we enter a king, you know, another step into it. You know, we see that with Samuel through David. But plan B fails. This is number eight. And the kingdom splits. Israel refuses to let God rule in the way that he wants. They are usurpers once again. And because of that, all kinds of hardship, and this is what the prophets and the writings, like this is what all this is going on, the whole second half of our Old Testament that we usually don't read too much. This is all that they're talking about. And so they go into exile to prepare for a new day. And it's interesting, this theme of exile, um, I think there's similarities in the Exodus, right? Before they could go into the promised land, they went into the wilderness. Before Jesus comes, Israel's in exile. And then returns, sort of, right? Not fully the way, the way they left. Even Jesus' ministry, you know, in Matthew 4, we study the temptation of Jesus. And we, you know, our Bible message out of that is, um, 
you know, you know, just claim the word. Like you can stand up to temptation. Devil's going to tempt you, but you can do it. Jesus did it. What if the whole 40 days in the wilderness that Jesus did was a reenactment of the Exodus and even the exile where there's this wilderness time before God's going to do something? Because when Jesus comes out of the wilderness, then he launches his ministry, right? The kingdom of God come, gets ushered in in a new way through that time. And so you'll see why this is significant in just a second. So that's kind of the Old Testament, right? That's the whole story behind the Gospels. And then the New Testament begins, and the divine plan A is restarted with Jesus. God's going to rule through his son, right, a human, right? God wants to rule through his people. So he comes in human form, who now is just not a human, but he is the king and the, the Messiah, Right? Messiah is like the anointed king or priest over Israel. That's what Messiah meant. Christ is a similar word to king, similar to Messiah, king. Lord means ruler, right? Our Lord and Savior, ruler who saves us. Um, so number 10, um, the divine plan A extends now God's rule to the Gentiles. In Genesis chapter 15, what was the promise to Abraham? That all nations would be blessed through him. See, the big difference between the Apostle Paul and the Pharisees, the Pharisees always went back to Moses and the law. If you read Paul, Paul goes back to Abraham. It goes back further because Jesus, right, is that second true Adam, right? But Jesus fulfills the original covenant that God made that all people would be blessed. And now the Gentiles are now included into God's people, and it's called the church. Uh, yeah kind of sticking in my mind the uh, bible teacher we had from moody yep. at log on for life uh, he said that uh, noah was the second adam jesus was the last adam i never heard you know david being the second adam but i just wondered it kind of stuck in my mind because yep. i thought jesus was the second adam He's but he showed us yeah. he was the last adam but yep. he said noah was the second adam he could be you have basically the Adams, right? We could probably list out even more, right? They were kind of those representations of kind of what Christ would foreshadow, you know? So we could probably add even more to those. Does that make sense? So, um, so now the church. So now we have Jews, Gentiles together, right? Israel, Gentiles together now as one people. This is, this is huge in Paul's ministry that we now can sit at the table of fellowship together because we're one. Right, this characterized, this was the problem for the early church. Jews wanted Gentiles to become Jews so they could be with God. Paul, you know, they said, no, something new has started. Right, the true second Adam has come. Right, he's fulfilled essentially the story of Israel, and now we get to live in a new way in the kingdom of God that's here now, and it's ultimately going to be fulfilled one day down the road. So this is point 11. The divine plan A requires generations of missional people. This is the church to keep the rule of Christ, Christ as Lord, through the church, that the church would flourish in this cosmic temple, that we're given the ministry of reconciliation. The kingdom of God is now broken in through his people in a new way, because now God lives in us, right? And we're empowered to go and to bring all things under the rulership of Christ, that Christ is Lord of all, both in our lives, but in our culture, in this cosmic temple, right? And this is the mission and ministry that we've been given. And then divine plan A, Going back to it again, it's consummated in the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, where God will rule through the Lamb, who is Jesus, who is himself the new temple, so to speak, by the Spirit. 
And so this is what your whole Bible is all about. And I would say this very much is the gospel story, but we need to dig into it a little more. How much time do I have? When do we end? We may not make that uh, whatever concert at 1.30, because I'm just now starting to get excited. <laughs> and you're worried that I might be serious. What time do we, how long do we have? When are we usually done? 11? Okay, we'll, we'll make it. We'll just have to go quick. Turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, because I think, you know, there's so many wonderful passages, but this passage of Paul has so much to say about the gospel that I think we need to pay attention to it, and it helps us frame what we're talking about, that this gospel is so much bigger than just the plan of salvation is how we've made it here in recent times. So I just want to read um, verses 1 through 5, actually primarily 1 through 5. I gave you 20 through 28. Um, we'll just touch on that in a little bit. But listen to Paul's words. I'm just going to read this, and then we're going to go back through it and break it down. <clears throat> he says this. He goes, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I, for what I received, I passed on to you as first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And it goes on after that he appeared to more than 500. And then it goes on and it talks more about the resurrection. You know, I'll read 20 through 28 as well. It says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will, all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruit, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when, the hands over the king, when he hands over the kingdom of God, hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. He must reign until all his enemies have been put under his feet. The last enemy to do, be destroyed is death. For he's put everything under his feet. Now when it says he's put everything under his feet, I love this Paul. He always has to put in these little like asterisks. Right? He says, uh, now when it says everything be put under his feet, it's clear that he not, does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. But when he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. That God will rule. Period. Right? It kind of ends right there. And then he goes on and talks more about the resurrection of the body. So I just want to kind of draw out a few points. Some of these are obvious. Some of them may not be so obvious. I think some of them are bigger ahas, and some of them are smaller ahas. But even listen to Paul's language, because like, I want to read this a little bit more of how it would have been written. Paul says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I gospeled to you, which you have received and which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the gospel I gospeled to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. Right? This is all about, Paul is hanging everything on the gospel. Right? So it's very important. The gospel that he says, I preached to you, that I gospeled to you. And even in those couple sentences, the gospel has a past right, on which you, um, which you have received, past, on which you're taking your stand, present, and by this gospel you're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, right? So there's even this forward-looking thing. So it's past, present, future. It's all about the gospel. Second, that the church tradition, this is the gospel that was being preached, Paul is saying. Right? He didn't invent this up. He says, I passed on to you um, 
what was first importance, what I received as first importance. So Paul received this gospel. Well, who would he receive that from? It would have been the apostles, right? Those disciples, we listed that somewhere up there, you know, that were with Jesus, right? That there was a gospel out there, and Paul had received this, and now he's passing it on to the Corinthians, reminding them, because he's already gospeled to them. He's reminding them of the gospel that he preached. And he says it's of first importance. Right? He's saying this is the big idea. Right? Don't be distracted by all these other things. Like This is the foundation for what we're talking about. And then he defines it. That Christ died, he was buried, he was raised, and that he appeared. Right? And this gospel was proclaimed. It was the story of Jesus. Okay? The story of Jesus. Not just dead and buried, right? but he rose and that he appeared. And as you keep reading in verse 20 through 21, that He's going to put everything under his feet, and God is going to rule. Right? That, that's a little bigger story than our bullet point plan of salvation gives us sometimes. He also says that it's the resolution of Israel's story. Now, this one isn't as obvious. right? Because Christ died, buried, rose again, appeared. All of that is in the context. Did you catch that little phrase that kept showing up over and over again in verses 3 and 4? That Christ died for our sins. What? According to the Scriptures. That he was raised on the third day. What? What are the scriptures? Yeah. It's the whole Old Testament, right? Because the New Testament was being written. Paul didn't say, open up to chapter 14, because I'm getting ready to write chapter 15 while you're listening. You know, like that wasn't how it worked back then. So, and the Old Testament was their lifeline to God. Jesus doing all of these things according to the scripture, Paul is saying, Jesus is completing that story. It has come to resolution. Right? It's found its wholeness now in this person, Jesus Christ. That's why if you study you know, Christology, Christ, it's amazing how he fulfilled. He becomes the Passover lamb, the Lord's Supper. All of these practices we take on, you know, it's Jesus is systematically replacing himself with Israel's history. He's fulfilling all of those things that we know it said foreshadowed when the Messiah Christ would come. So th- that's hugely significant, and that is central to the gospel that Paul is preaching that he's gospeling to the Corinthian church. You know, this is interesting. This is why um, Galatians 3.6. Get excited on this stuff. Listen, listen to these verses. Are you so foolish after beginning by the means of the spirit, spirit that you're now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain? If it really is in vain. So again, I ask, does God give you the spirit at work miracles? Among you, or by the works of the law, or by your believing in what you heard. So also in Adam, believe God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Um, where am I? Verse... No, but we, inter- we don't need to rush the gospel. It's, it's much more important to hear that than it is to, to do this. Okay. We usually kind of take a little break at 11 o'clock because okay. everybody needs to stretch and maybe take a waltz down the hall. Okay. And then we can come back and keep going. We'll, we'll keep you as long as you're willing to stay. I'll be done at 11. Okie dokie. We have 10 minutes. What time do you have on your watch? Um, nine and a half. Nine and a half. Are we okay? Do you need to stretch quick or can we go five or seven more minutes and then we'll... And if we don't get to the end... You'll have enough to finish it yourself. And he'll have to come back. Is that good? That's good. Okay. Anyway, you will make this easy. Matthew, verse 1, chapter 1. 
Because when you have eyes for this, like you will see this, these themes that Jesus completing Israel's story all over the place. All over the place. Both in Jesus' words and in the early church. But the very first verse of the New Testament, and we never catch this, it says this. It goes, this is the genealogy of Jesus, what? The Messiah. Who? The son of David. Who? The son of Abraham. Right? What That statement is huge because they're saying this Messiah, this anointed king, priest over Israel, he's anchoring it to Abraham and David. Right? He's going all he's basically saying, This is Israel, hello. This is pretty big. That this guy is connected and he's actually fulfilling all this is the beginning of the story. A new story is emerging that's going to fulfill Israel. Right? So anyway, we could go on and on with that. Um, Salvation flows, so here's, here's, here's what we get into it. Salvation flows, this is point five, flows from the gospel. That Jesus died with us, instead of us, and for us. And uh, there's some fun big words like theosis and co-cruciformity and all kinds of stuff. If you're interested in like some really crazy hard reading, but it's fascinating to understand kind of what does it really mean to be in Christ, that Christ is in us. Right? How, how can Christ die for us, that we actually die with him? Right? We're called, all of these are Christian language. So this is called inhabiting the cruciform God, kenosis, justification, and theosis, and Paul's narrative of soteriology. Right? It sounds impressive. I don't know that it is that much. But it, it's fascinating right? that salvation is in this story if we will keep the story together. Because it's in that story that we put our hope, our faith, our trust. That Jesus is a complete story. Right? It's not just an aspect of his life. It's not just that he died on the cross, but it's all of Jesus' life and what it represented, what it fulfilled, and what it ushers in. Um, and this real Jesus is both Lord and King and God. He's not a good luck charm. He's not a ticket to get into heaven when we die. The gospel is the story proclaimed about Jesus as Messiah. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Son. Jesus the anointed King who fulfills Israel, right? I keep saying it over and over again, but this is like really significant stuff. Um, he's also a ruler. Read Psalm 2 sometime on your own. Psalm 2 is a great foreshadow of Christ who puts everything on verses 20 through 28 in, in 1 Corinthians 15 where we talked about, you know, Jesus, you know, authority overall, putting everything under his feet, handing it over to God. Um, um, that psalm talks about that there. And ultimately, at the end, God is going to be God. We will be God's people, and the whole story will ultimately be about God. The new heaven, the new earth, it's all about the Lamb, right? That the nations will gather around the throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, right? That, that, that will be the refrain in heaven. So what I want to do is, I'm just going to read you. I gave you this summary that kind of puts it all together on this last page that you have. So I'm just going to read this. We will be done Three minutes early, and then if you have any questions or any thoughts, you can do that before we let you go. So here's, here's the summary. Do you see why a limited understanding of the gospel to a bullet point plan of salvation limits what it means to receive the good news? The gospel we preach today is void, oftentimes, of that bigger story and is not bringing Christ as Lord, which is key to transformation, discipleship, and the missio di, the mission of God here on earth, which is the kingdom breaking into our world as we incarnate his presence with purpose and direction. That's the church.
that we are the living presence of God, Christ, here on earth because the Spirit lives in us. This is, you know, in Joel, Acts chapter 2, they refer back to Joel. This is what people were dreaming of and waiting on. We now get to live in that day. That second paragraph. According to Paul and the apostles, the gospel is the salvation-unleashing story of Jesus, Messiah, Lord, and Son, that brings to completion the story of Israel as found in the scriptures of the Old Testament. To gospel is to, to, to declare this story, and it is a story that saves people from their sins and brings them into the living, living into a new reality of the kingdom of God where Christ is Lord over everything. To learn the gospel, we must understand the gospel has kind of a, is like a four-legged chair. The gospel of the gospels, the gospel of Jesus, the gospels of the sermons and acts. There's 14 kind of gospeling sermons and acts and the apostolic tradition, the church tradition. Each of these four witnesses tell the same thing about the gospel. It's the story of Israel that comes to completion in the saving story of Jesus, who is Messiah of Israel, Lord over all, the Davidic Savior. There is one and only one gospel, and it was preached by Jesus, by Paul and by Peter. The gospel, to gospel, to evangelize, is to tell that story about Jesus. Salvation flows from that story, and it's characterized through faith, believing, right? It's that trust, repentance, and baptism, right? Repentance isn't just to stop doing bad things. It's moving towards God. Jesus called Israel to repent, not from doing bad things. He was calling to repent from being Israel. He's saying, the new Israel is here. You need to turn and move towards me. Follow me into the kingdom of God. Um, mm -mm. Salvation, okay, I said that. So repentance and baptism, right? Those are, those are key. This story is bigger than the current gospel framed by the plan of salvation. So kind of the hanging question then, to think about on your own, maybe discuss with each other another day. And so how do we build a gospel culture that is not limited to, to a personal salvation culture? Okay, how do we grow bigger, right? How do we call people into the kingdom of God that transforms life? And by the very nature of who we are now with God and with each other, we are calling people into that story that Jesus fulfills and gives us that hope. I'm done. Yes? Well, that is a big question. Yeah. Everyone was ready for Christ. They were ready to receive him. Yep. Today, in light of the globalization of our world, mm -hmm. and as a student of sociology in college, I know that countries have different cultures, they do not follow the same moral values that we have. How do we reach these people? Great question. Actually, the church, the gospel, is probably more alive and thriving around the world than it is in Europe and America right now, which is fast. This is why... Around the world, you mean Asia? Is that what you're talking about? Asia, India, Africa, you know, these countries that we thought were... You know, like, it's, it's, it's beginning to flourish. This is why I love our Global Mission Fest. Like, you hear the stories, you hear what's happening. Like, like it's almost intoxicatingly exciting. We're closing every day. And we're arrogant enough to think that we're the answer, right? You know what I mean? Like, countries are sending missionaries to America, like, to help us. You know, but we still think, like, we're the answer to the, for the world. But anyway. I think we're extremely arrogant. Yeah, I do, too. Yeah. Maria. Well, I'm, it's my, my thoughts is we have to be transformed yeah. ourselves by um, becoming like Christ, spending more time with him. 
just like in Peter, it says the husband is won by the wife without even her saying a word. It was her respectful behavior. So I kind of think once we're transformed by uh, knowing the scriptures, reading the Bible, and coming to know Christ more in our, our daily intimate uh, time with him, that once we're, we're transformed, that others will see that. But it's, I think it's a long process, and yeah. doesn't happen over, overnight. Yeah. I think it's a both and, right? It's love God and love others. And so our own transformation becomes a focal point. But I think we even stunt our own growth if we think it's, if we grow then this, I think we grow with others. And so I think as we're growing, we have to like pull people with us to learn how to live as Christ is Lord with us. You know what I mean? Like our transformation happens when we're a part of the transformation of others. I mean, that's why discipleship is so so important. You know, Jesus said, go make disciples. Literally, it's as you are going make disciples, right? So as you're going, who are the people around you? And we are going to grow as disciples together. Disciples are followers of King Jesus and the kingdom of God, making him Lord of all, right? And so I, th- I think that that spark, that, that when we capture that, I think this is why I'm going to preach that July 7th in here. Like, I just want people so hungry to not just grow themselves, but to bring other people with, like, to pursue others like God pursues us. You know what I mean? We don't do that as well. We like to pursue God, but we're not always pursuing others as much as we could. When we start doing that, I think something gets unleashed, and it'll be the gospel being lived out among us. Yeah. I believe, you know, God has given me the gift of evangelism in my world, you know, not like you are. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I use the Internet as a tool in any way I can. And I uh, talk, uh, as God opens doors, I talk about Christ. I want them to know Jesus as their Savior and Lord so that they can go to heaven. This is my heart's desire with everybody that's in my world. And I pray for them almost daily. But it's it it just doesn't, unless that veil is removed from their eyes. But, uh, But I think as I know... Is I'm with God, spend more time with God, we become more like who we spend the most time with. Yeah, that amen. that's going to people are going to ask questions. I noticed some of my unbelieving friends um, ask questions, but it's just like a little taste at this point yeah. with some of them. Yeah. So I don't know. I, sometimes I feel like giving up, but uh, yeah. no, it's don't like, give up. Um, yeah. you know, the invitation years. is always come and see, right? Who did you find? They just said, come and see. They didn't try to convince him who Jesus was. They just said, come and see. Right? I'll, I'll end with this. Rich Stearns. We know Rich Stearns, president of World Vision. His son, Pete Stearns, is our middle school pastor, right? which is amazing. Rich, he wrote The Hole in the Gospel. Have you heard of that book, The Hole in the Gospel? So this is another book. It just came out a month or two ago. It's called Unfinished. But the tagline is said, believing is only the beginning. Right? So it very much it's another book talking about um, some of the stuff we've talked about today. Okay, so there's a beginning, but it's not just to go to heaven when we die. We now are a people in the kingdom of God that has a mission. So what does that, how do we do it together?